This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. This podcast was recorded at a seminar hosted by the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law on the 11th of April 2017. The seminar presented by Professor David Fitzgerald of the University of California, San Diego, was entitled Remote Control of Asylum Seekers, the U.S. Experience. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you so much for joining us for this evening's seminar. My name is Jane McAdam. I'm the director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law. And one of the great privileges that we have at the centre is welcoming a variety of visitors from around the world. And tonight is one of those terrific occasions when we are absolutely delighted to welcome Professor David Fitzgerald, who's joining us from the US, and he is going to speak to us about um, what he has termed remote control of asylum seekers, the US experience. David is the Theodore E. Gildred Chair in US-Mexican Relations, as well as Professor of Sociology and Co-Director of the Center for Comparative Immigration Studies at the University of California, San Diego. He is co-author of a book called Culling the Masses, The Democratic Roots of Racist Immigration Policy in the Americas, which was published a few years ago by Harvard University Press. And he also wrote A Nation of of Emigrants, How Mexico Manages Its Migration, which was published in 2009. He's co-editor of six books on Mexico-US migration, and I'm sure his knowledge uh, and expertise are in particularly high demand at the moment. He's, he's worked on the politics of international migration, citizenship, and research methodologies, and he's been published in a wide array of top peer-reviewed international journals. In 2013, he won the American Sociological Association's International Migration Section Award for Public Sociology. And as the topic of tonight's presentation might suggest, his current project is examining asylum policies in a comparative perspective, but tonight he's going to focus for us on the US experience. We are, for those who are using Twitter, um, using the hashtag, which is up here but is rather small, um, hashtag US Asylum for anybody who wants to tweet throughout the lecture. David will speak for about half an hour and then we'll take questions from the floor. And I'll just let you know that we are recording the session. So if in asking a question you don't want that to be recorded, please just signal it and we'll ensure that either it's not recorded or it's cut out of any recording that we might want to make public later on. So I'd now like to welcome David to the floor. David, we're looking forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Well, thanks very much to uh, Jane and Claire for inviting me and to the, the Calder Center. Um, it's, it's a real pleasure to be with you here and, and talk about my, my current research and, and also to learn more about the Australian experience at the same time. So I'll try to uh, wrap up my own remarks fairly quickly so that we'll have lots of time for discussion. As I'm sure you know, there's... Um, sorry, let me just bring up my presentation here. There's, there's been a lot of talk, uh, maybe too much talk, about building a big, beautiful wall on the, the U.S.-Mexico border. And the way that's discussed almost has the assumption that it's an open border now. 
which is very curious as someone who lives in uh, San Diego on the border with Mexico at the world's busiest border crossing. Uh, there's already quite, quite a bit of a, a border fortification. You can actually see it from 35,000 feet as you fly along the, uh, the Texas-Mexico um, border and into California. Since the mid-1990s, the U.S. has spent a lot of money, uh, put a lot of agents, the order of about 20,000 agents, on the border between Mexico and the U.S. And for about a third of the existing border right now, there is some kind of border fortification. And the, the style of fortification varies from place to place, but in San Diego, this is what it looks like. Uh, so at the same time as we're talking about creating um, a new wall, there's already quite a bit of a wall. The, the other curious thing about this discussion is that if you look at the number of apprehensions every year um, since the 1960s, you can see that today the U.S. is at an historic low. That this is the, the lowest level of apprehensions of people coming across the southwest border without papers in my lifetime. Um, something else that's um, not widely remarked on in the mainstream media at least is that about half of the people who are being apprehended now on that border are other than Mexican. And historically, that's been an overwhelmingly uh, Mexican flow. So most of the media attention, though, has been on building some kind of uh, Great Wall and, and flows from Mexico to the US. But I want to talk about some other processes that happen in the darkness, behind the scenes, um, and various ways that the US government is trying to prevent irregular migrants and often asylum seekers in particular or in ways that especially affect asylum seekers from ever even reaching this border wall or ever even reaching a US airport. And I'll begin with the idea of a dome, a, a giant dome over North America. There have been a number of different techniques that have been developed to keep people from ever reaching North America. These technologies are also being used in places like Australia and Europe, but the academic research on this, particularly that coming out of Europe, often acts as if uh, this is a relatively new uh, set of ideas coming out of the 1990s, when in fact there's much deeper historical precedent um, in the U.S. case for these kinds of activities. So there, has been, there have been forms of pre-clearance where uh, passengers interact with U.S. agents on foreign soil, um, going back to the late 19th century for Europeans transiting Canada to get to the U.S. Uh, the same for um, air passengers uh, in the Toronto airport since 1952 and in a number of other uh, countries around the world. The U.S. has had carrier sanctions against uh, ship masters bringing unauthorized uh, or inadmissible immigrants going also back to the 19th century, uh, various forms of uh, carrier sanctions on air arrivals since 1952, and visa policy. It might seem natural uh, today that you have to have a visa to, to travel, but it is fairly recent in history. Uh, originally, visas were introduced during World War I as an emergency measure, but as is often the case, something that happens at a moment of crisis then becomes sticky and institutionalized and by 1924 in the U.S., as in many other countries, uh, visas became uh, required. It's worth noting that these requirements were first thought to be outrageous by travelers, to be treated like common criminals, to have fingerprints taken, uh, to be photographed, and now people do it all the time and they don't even think twice about it, but it's become normalized. There's also a lot of coordination with neighbors that happens behind the scenes. 
some of the coordination with Canada is fairly well known. Very little is publicly known about the coordination that happens behind the scenes with the government of Mexico. So all air passengers arriving in Canada or the US or Mexico, even if they're not intending to travel to the US, they have their information shared in advance with US security uh, agencies. Uh, behind the scenes, the, the US government has quite effectively pressured the Mexican government to make it very difficult for nationals of 40 countries to get visas to come to the US. Those nationalities tend to be concentrated in the Middle East, um, Asia, Colombia, Again, not everyone is an asylum seeker, but it's something that disproportionately makes it quite difficult for asylum seekers to ever uh, reach Mexico, should they then intend to, to go to uh, the US. There are very few limitations, very few sort of institutional constraints on the dome. And part of my broader project is to figure out not only what are the different um, techniques being used in the US, uh, Europe, and Australia, but also what are some of the constraints, even if they're partial constraints on those techniques. And, and of all the different um, styles of externalization of borders that I'm going to be referring to this evening, it's this, the dome, that has the, the fewest constraints. That's because these visa restrictions, as I said, have become taken for granted. Uh, you, you don't see people really complaining about these. Um, air travel has been so resolutely securitized, it's hard to imagine that being walked back. And then there's also been a quite a successful demonization of anything having to do with paying people smugglers for the service of moving without papers from one country to another. Uh, there's often a, a deliberate conflation of trafficking, which involves coercion, and, uh, and smuggling, which doesn't inherently involve uh, coercion. So for these reasons, I think we're unlikely to see many um, restraints on, on this going forward either. Let me turn now to the idea of a moat around uh, North America as well. Here in this, um, this image, which comes from a multi-agency US task force planning for mass movements from the Caribbean to Florida. You can see Sandy Eagle cruising down here from Florida. This is uh, Cuba here and uh, the Dominican Republic and, and, and Haiti on the, on the right. The US has been involved in maritime interdictions in a, a serious way since the early 1980s. There were two major waves in the early 1990s. They've primarily affected uh, Haitians in uh, light blue and uh, Cubans in yellow, but there have also been important interdictions, uh, for example, Chinese, both in the Caribbean and lesser known um, instances in the Western Pacific um, around, uh, around Guam. Now, when the um, Reagan administration uh, created the executive order to authorize these kinds of interdictions on the high seas, they very explicitly said that the, the principle of non-refoulement would apply, the principle that people would not be returned to a country where they would face persecution on these specific uh, UN grounds. Uh, but during the uh, crisis in, uh, in 1992, the, the administration of Bush Sr. Um, very explicitly said that, um, that non-refoulement provisions would no longer be um, observed on the, uh, on the high seas. When Bill Clinton was running for president, he said that this was an outrage. And once he took office, he continued the same policy. Once again, it became a sticky. This, this decision went all the way to the US Supreme Court, which upheld it. A lot of people in this room have written very prominently that this is bad law. Um, nevertheless, this is the law in the US um, currently um, that says that both the US domestic law and the Refugee Convention don't apply to interdictions on the high seas. 
But there's some interesting um, exceptions, which I think are worth exploring, even if they're problematic. I think for, as a sociologist, I'm interested in exploring uh, why we sometimes see the executive conducting forms of screening, even if we might think uh, from a normative position that they are inadequate. So one of those is what, uh, what has been termed by some as the shout test. And this applies to all nationalities save two, and I'll get into the other two in a moment. Um, so the idea here is that on the deck of a Coast Guard cutter with a large number of people perhaps, if someone were to jump up and down and say, I am asking for asylum based on uh, persecution if I go home because of my political beliefs, then there will be some kind of screening. But there's no other kind of screening of, uh, of, of people in any kind of systematic or, or individual way. So it's certainly a very thin form of screening. It's interesting that it exists at all given that the Supreme Court has given the executive complete latitude to do um, what it likes on the high seas. For Chinese nationals, uh, there is a, a written form that's administered only for Chinese. This is not uh, particularly relevant at this moment, but, but in the past, and particularly in the 1990s, this is something that affected uh, several thousand people who were interdicted. And then, importantly, until January of this year, there was a very big exception for, for Cuban nationals. And I want to talk for a minute about the way that Cubans have been treated. There's a lot of misinformation, even among um, academics in the U.S. who, who study um, migration. You may have heard of the so-called wet foot, dry foot policy, and you would look in vain in uh, U.S. law for something called the wet foot, dry foot policy. There, there's no single such thing. It's, it's a combination of a couple of different kinds of, of law and some administrative interpretations. So the wet foot part of this policy goes back to a bilateral agreement um, between the U.S. and Cuban governments where for the first time the Cuban government agreed to take back Cubans who were interdicted by the United States. Before 1994 it was extremely rare for the Cuban government to um, accept that. Importantly, this applied to both Cubans interdicted in uh, international waters as well as, as U.S. waters. But there has always been some form of um, shipboard screening where if someone, um, up until January, if someone were to pass an initial credible fear interview, they would then be taken to Guantanamo, uh, to the U.S. Naval Station for more extensive screening. And if they were to eventually pass all of those tests of whether or not that they were uh, refugees, then they would be resettled in some, some third country. So the dry foot aspect of this policy is that until um, and I'm sorry, wet, wet foot is still in, in, in effect. So the dry foot aspect is that until January, um, based on the 1966 uh, Cuban Adjustment Act, that someone who made it to dry U.S. soil would be, in almost all cases, paroled into the U.S. This is an idiosyncratic use of parole that has nothing to do with the normal criminal context. It means that the government, uh, the U.S. government, the Attorney General, um, bring someone in outside of the, the normal kinds of, uh, of avenues. And this has been done with many hundreds of thousands of people, um, not just Cubans, but the Cubans have been the nationality to most benefit from, from this. Okay, so what's curious is that the question has often arisen of what constitutes dry U.S. land, and sometimes uh, sort of absurd ways. So just as one of many examples, just uh, last May, a group of about 20 uh, Cuban nationals arrived at this lighthouse, which is operated by the federal government about 11 kilometers off the coast of Florida. And this lighthouse uh, is built on a reef. There's always water under the lighthouse, but at high tide, there's about 1.5 meters of water. So 
the Cubans who made it to the lighthouse said, we've reached uh, the United States, this is dry land, um, and, and you can actually see them in this photograph taken from a news helicopter. They're up here in this lighthouse, and this is a US Coast Guard vessel um, trying to convince them to come off. Eventually this was uh, litigated um, in, uh, in the court in Miami as they waited on a larger US Coast Guard vessel. And the, the judge decided that this did not constitute dry land. Um, a number of them passed a credible fear interview and were taken to Guantanamo for processing and the rest were repatriated to Cuba. Note that none of this has to do with what, if the US has jurisdiction in this space. Everyone agrees that this is US territory. These are US territorial waters. There's no question about that whatsoever. The question is, does this constitute dry land for the purpose of this, of this particular um, policy? Okay, so Obama got rid of that, um, and in his last few days of, of, of office, he, he got rid of the, uh, the dry foot aspect. Um, and uh, for the first time, just two weeks ago, uh, there was an interception of Cubans in the Caribbean, but it's not really clear what um, procedures were, were followed on board. So we don't really know what, what Trump would do. Um, there, there are some limitations, though. As I said, we, we see some um, self-limitation by, uh, by the executive. Um, there has also been a fair amount over the years of uh, interest group pressure from various parts of civil society, from a network of uh, legal aid providers, from their allies in the U.S. Congress, from media who are concerned with these issues, and, and they have had some successes kind of around the edges of these kinds of, of maritime interceptions. International law has not really been any kind of serious constraint, but I would argue that more broadly softer international norms, um, humanitarian norms rather than rights-based obligations have, have also limited what the, uh, the government might also uh, do. Let's turn now to the idea of a buffer uh, between the US and the rest of the world. There has been a lot of buffering going on in secret or quasi-secret uh, using Mexico as a buffer since the early 1980s. Um, it's becoming less secret over time. It's sensitive in Mexico because the U.S. has a long history of intervening in Mexico. The top half of Mexico was taken by the U.S. in the 19th century. But uh, remarkably, the uh, very high-ranking official in the Department of Homeland Security said in congressional testimony a few years ago that the Guatemalan border with Chiapas, Chiapas being the southernmost state of Mexico, that the Guatemalan border with Chiapas is now the southern border of the U.S. And there have been similar statements to that, um, to that effect. So what does that mean uh, to be, for Mexico to be a buffer state? If you actually travel to this area, it's, it's a jungle area with a river here, very thinly populated, very little development. It certainly doesn't look like a buffer state. You, you don't see guard towers and watchdogs. This doesn't uh, conjure up images of the Berlin Wall. In fact, you can see people who are openly being carried across the river without papers from the bridge, from the formal checkpoint. So people are constantly traveling back and forth without any formal control, and the government evidently doesn't uh, do anything about it. But what you do have in, in Mexico is what's called, um, in, in translation, a, a vertical frontier, where rather than concentrating forces right along the border, which is what we would typically see in a place like uh, Europe or the US, uh, you see enforcement all along transportation routes, train routes, um, highway routes, airports heading north to the US where there's uh, racial profiling and people who look like they're not Mexican are, are, are pulled off and, uh, and questioned and often detained. 
the the scale of buffering that goes on with within Mexico is is vast and and also little understood. It's been going on in a in a serious way in terms of deportations since around 1989, 1990. More than three million uh, deportations um, in that time period. The vast majority of the of the deportations here, these are deportation events rather than people. The vast majority of the deportations are of Central Americans and specifically three nationalities from the so-called Northern Triangle, uh, that is Guatemala, El Salvador, and uh, Honduras. If you examine the uh, deportations by the U.S., compare them to the deportations by Mexico, that's the, the Mexican deportations in, in red and by the U.S. in blue, uh, you, you can see the, the, the amount of buffering that goes on and, and the very strong role played by the Mexican government in this. It, it's only been really in the last several years that the U.S. has caught up to Mexico. Um, in uh, 2014, 2015, there was a, a so-called surge of unaccompanied uh, minors and, and others from Central America uh, ar arriving at the U.S. border. And the U.S. began applying a lot of pressure on the Mexican government to prevent people from being able to transit Mexican territory. And, and that pressure was applied effectively. You can see here in 2015 um, that there are about twice as many deportations of those three nationalities by the Mexican government compared to the uh, U.S. government. Almost all of the, uh, of the Northern Triangle nationalities who are detained in Mexico are, are deported. You can see the, the deportations here in red. Almost all of them are, um, as I said, those who were detained are overwhelmingly deported. Um, in Mexican law, they don't use nasty terms like deportation or detention center. They use euphemisms like many other countries. They refer to um, places of lodging and returns, but in practice, that's, that, that's what we're, we're talking about. Th these policies are not, um, are not new. Um, in the Q&A, if anyone's interested, I can walk you back to how these have evolved since the early 1980s. Okay, well remember the, uh, the Cuban nationals and when wet foot, dry foot was, uh, was conceived and those different pieces of the puzzle came together, most people were thinking that dry foot constituted arriving on the beach in, uh, in South Florida and that's typically what happened and often the government made huge efforts to keep people from getting even 100 meters from being in the ocean onto the beach. But you can also get to dry U.S. land via Mexico. And in fact, the distance between um, Cuba and, uh, and South Florida is about the same distance um, as it is across the Yucatan Strait. So beginning in the 2000s, people started hiring uh, fisher, fishermen's boats and, and other forms of people smuggling to, um, to arrive in Mexico and then travel north and present their cases at the U.S.-Mexico border. And th those cases um, became more and more common, reaching um, you know, more than 30,000 cases in 2015. What's interesting here is that this was not an issue of public comment in the US. Unless you were a professional researcher on Cuban migration to the US, you probably didn't even know that this. I mean, even someone who keeps up with the news and reads the New York Times and The Economist and so forth probably wouldn't even know this because people came in in a trickle. They were quickly paroled. They then went to Florida, reunited with family members. There was no spectacle of warehouses full of uh, women and children as there was with similar numbers, slightly larger, but the same magnitude of, of Central Americans arriving at the same time. 
So it's kind of an interesting illustration of the fact that there is a lot of capacity in the US to very quickly process tens of thousands of people arriving without papers. It's a matter of political will of which nationalities are um, allowed to kind of go about their business as usual and, and which are excluded. You can see here that the Mexican government has not done very much uh, buffering. They've had little reason to, uh, to do much buffering. So they've detained a fairly, lar fairly large number of people, but then quickly uh, released them, uh, typically with a uh, sort of an exit permit that gives the bearer 30 days to leave Mexico. And the idea is that in 30 days, you'll have time to get on the bus and go up to the, the Texas border. So that's what's happened until now. Um, but this avenue no longer exists. So we see um, increasing numbers of Cubans bottled up inside Mexico. If they present themselves at the US border, since the, the policy changed in the waning days of the Obama administration, they would be processed like anyone else. And so interestingly enough, some of them are hoping that because Trump during the campaign suggested that there would be a much more hostile relationship between the US and Cuba, that this could work to their advantage. Um, that is their hope, but we don't know if that's going to happen or not. There are much smaller numbers of, of people coming from uh, Asia and Africa. And here, large numbers of them are, are seeking uh, asylum. The vast majority of them, and let's just talk about Asians for a moment, the vast majority of them are uh, detained in Mexico, especially as they come across the, uh, the border from Guatemala. They're highly visible. Uh, they're detained, but in few cases are they deported. Um, that's even more extreme if you look at treatment of uh, various African nationalities. You can see that the tensions are up, but almost none of them are, are deported. So if uh, the U.S. is pressuring Mexico in these ways, and it is, and since 2007 it's invested many, many tens of millions of dollars in uh, capacity building, training, uh, giving equipment to the Mexican government to crack down on transit migration, you might ask, and why, why is it that when it comes to Africans and Asians, you, you see that almost all of them are, are being released and making their way north. Uh, the reason is, number one, the numbers are small. Um, so the U.S. gets about a million legal immigrants a year. There are 42 million immigrants in the United States. So if another you know, 2,000 people come through Mexico in itself, that doesn't really uh, mean anything. Um, but sort of, well, it is secret, um, but now not, not so secret anymore. Uh, less secret once I publish this, uh, this book. Uh, we, we know that the U.S. government is systematically screening um, so-called extracontinentals, people from Asia and Africa, while they're in detention centers in Mexico. So the Department of Homeland Security actually has agents on the ground along the border, um, as well as in various airports in Mexico. And so people have satisfied U.S. security concerns, and if a handful of them apply for asylum in the U.S., um, the government doesn't particularly care, at least it hasn't until now. There are some, some limitations on, on this kind of buffering activity. One of them is that uh, U.S. funding for the Mexican government to, to sort of bolster its capacity um, often comes tied with um, provisions that the Mexican government apply with human rights norms. And there are particular uh, congressional representatives and senators that take this on as, a, as an issue. Um, and so, there are a number of many nasty things that go on out in the, uh, the jungle, but be because the continuation of that aid is tied to, um, to some kind of observance of those norms, I think that also um, li limits the, the scope for maneuver of the Mexican government. 
Historically, there hasn't been very much of a uh, civil society watchdog presence in Mexico, but that is changing pretty quickly. There are a lot of grassroots organizations that are popping up. There are also a lot of organizations that are receiving funding from, interestingly enough, U.S.-based philanthropic foundations. So the Rockefeller Foundation, uh, Open Society, uh, MacArthur, Ford are, are all funding um, Mexican civil society projects to keep an eye on human rights abuses, uh, particularly of uh, women, children, asylum seekers on route through, through Mexico. And then something that applies very much to the, the context of Mexican um, buffering in a way that doesn't, say, to Indonesian buffering with Australia, is that there is so much migration from Mexico to the U.S. that that becomes a major issue that's linked to, to buffering. The, w with the exception of the last couple of years, um, you know, Me Mexico has been the, by, by far the primary source of especially irregular migration to the U.S., uh, that there are more Mexicans living in the U.S. than there are total immigrants of all nationalities in any other country in the world. So a lot of what the Mexican government does vis-a-vis -vis, um, transit migrants is to create more generous uh, liberalizing laws um, that are explicitly based on human rights principles. There's some of the most beautiful laws in the world when it comes to this. Um, and, and the explicit audience for those is the United States. And when those laws are, are created, when they're signed, um, the, the argument is made that the U.S. government should not treat Mexicans so harshly in the U.S. when Mexico has so improved its treatment of, of Central Americans and others passing through, through Mexico. On the other hand, when, when the U.S. takes all the various unilateral measures, and this will become even more um, striking if, if Trump does what he threatens to do, um, then that becomes very difficult for the Mexican government to be seen as doing the dirty work of the gringos by cracking down on people in, in transit. So this, this is another way that, at least in this context, it creates a limitation that doesn't apply to all buffering states um, everywhere. Another uh, technique is various forms of, of caging people either in their country of origin or in their region of uh, settlement, uh, sorry, their, 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 their region of origin or their, or their country of origin. And most famously in the U.S. case, this is not the only place that the U.S. has done this, but most famously is the U.S. Naval Station in uh, Guantanamo Bay. Um, this is a piece of territory that the U.S. more or less forcibly leased uh, from the Cubans in 1903, having just occupied them. And these days there's a very small processing center that has maybe 30 people or so setting aside the issue of the, the so-called war on, on terror. Um, but the, the capacity is there to, to ramp this up very quickly in case of a, uh, of a mass flow out of the, of the Caribbean. There, there are some limitations on, on this kind of, uh, of caging activity. It's also taken place on a number of other Caribbean islands, as well as Tinian in the, in the West Pacific. Uh, one is that when when it becomes impossible for people to have any kind of legal channels out and to, and to cooperate with the government of the, of the country of origin, uh, that, that leaves a lot of bad press. So for example, uh, the, the U.S. has uh, in, in the past cooperated with the authorities in Cuba, uh, with the authorities in Haiti, um, during you know, authoritarian regimes, and, and that looks bad in both the domestic and, uh, and international press to have that kind of open collaboration of bodily people up and making it impossible for them to get out. 
the, the Cuban government in particular has, has often been quite uh, skillful at linking the U.S. interest in and limiting the number of Cubans coming to the U.S. to broader issues in the, the highly conflictive bilateral relationship and, and very explicitly using um, the idea of, of a tap to open and, and close flows of Cubans out as, as a bargaining chip with the United States. Uh, the Cuban government is keenly aware that this creates big domestic problems in the U.S., particularly in a strategic swing state like Florida when, when large numbers of Cubans arrive at once. So it's, it's become part of that uh, of that Cold War um, conflict. And then for reasons perhaps of a, a bit of humanitarianism, but I think more in terms of uh, public relations or the, the international branding of uh, the U.S. as a leading light humanitarian place and so forth, there has been an effort to periodically create in-country processing programs. Some of these have been at the level of uh, a peer, almost pure tokenism, let's say tokenism. So that, that applies to, for example, the U.S. Um, in-country processing in Haiti um, in, in 1994. Um, there are programs that are much more serious, such as the ongoing program in, uh, in Cuba. But these programs are tricky because people have to line up outside the U.S. Embassy, the U.S. Special Interest <laughs> Section, in full view of the security forces, saying that they are being persecuted by those same security forces. So. Um, it's, 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 a, it's, 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 a, it's a small limitation, but it has, at least in the Cuban case, um, yielded you know, many thousands of, of people uh, over the course of, of a decade who have entered the U.S. under these provisions. Okay, so in the closing, let me just move here to the relationship between uh, some of the caging activities in uh, the U.S. and the caging activities on... Um, Australia's behalf and, and Madison and uh, Nauru. Uh, as, as we know, under the, the first version of a, of a U.S.-Australia deal, the so-called Atlantic solution, uh, there was going to be an, an exchange uh, where refugees would be exchanged between uh, Guantanamo and uh, Nauru. This never actually happened because the, the Rudd administration ended the Pacific solution, so this kind of just fell, fell away when the, when the logic for it ended. Uh, the, the second version was uh, what looked to everyone like a swap, although the Australian government has insisted that it's not a swap. Um, so and under the terms of this, uh, negotiated with the Obama administration just last year in his waning days, um, and the, the details have always been quite murky about this, but that uh, the Australian government would resettle a number of Central Americans who are now in Costa Rica. And not in return, the U.S. would resettle some refugees um, who would pass the the screening process and the two offshore processing centers. These are very different populations. Um, what's interesting about the, um, the, the, the Central Americans in Costa Rica, they, they have never been intercepted by the U.S. They have never been to the U.S. Um, this was part of one of these token projects to, on the one hand, um, try to cut off large numbers of asylum seekers or other irregular migrants trying to reach the U.S. from Central America, but then saying, well, there is a legal avenue for this microscopic number of people who passed an initial screening in country uh, in the three northern tribal countries and then uh, went to Costa Rica for more intensive screening uh, by the UNHCR paid for by the United States. So in, in some ways they're, they're quite different populations. Um, of course now we don't know if this is, is actually going to 
to happen. There, there is a screening by DHS agents apparently right now, so people are being um, processed. Uh, we don't know if it's going to happen because clearly the Trump administration is hostile to this idea and he has declared it to be a, a dumb deal that was negotiated to bring uh, thousands of illegal immigrants from Australia to the U.S. is the way that he's phrased it. Um, so one of the reasons why we don't know what's going to happen with this is not simply the the will of the Trump administration, but what's going to happen um, in the courts with the, um, the lawsuits around the, the second executive order. So the, the second executive order, I recall that the first one was withdrawn after a number of lawsuits, but the second one does two things which are relevant here. One is that it suspends the, the refugee resettlement program altogether for 120 days, and secondly, it bans the admission of six nationalities for 90 days. Well, these six nationalities include people from Iran and uh, Somalia and Sudan and some of the nationalities of people who are being held in the Australian offshore processing centers. Um, this second executive order also reduces the annual um, cap for, for refugees, and so it's quite possible that the, the cap will be filled before um, they could be resettled. Although there is a provision for the Department of Homeland Security and the um, the Secretary of State to jointly decide at their discretion that they will bring in a particular individual. So even beyond the caps, theoretically, if they wanted to, um, they, they, they could bring in the, uh, the people from the, the Australian centers. Uh, we know that the, uh, the fe a federal judge in a, a court in Hawaii blocked this executive order. What's important about his injunction, which is different from the other lawsuits, is that it also includes an injunction on the refugee ban. The, the one in, um, in Maryland only affected this travel ban for six nationalities. So right now this is being um, appealed by the Trump administration and on May 15th, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals based in San Francisco, which is typically considered to be a liberal court, uh, will be uh, hearing the, the government's appeal and, uh, and hopefully then we'll get a bit more clarity on whether or not uh, these, uh, the, these solutions to uh, the, the caging on the part of both U.S. and Australia will, will actually come to pass. So with that, I will uh, happily take your questions. Thank you. Thanks, David, very, very much for that. Um, as David mentioned, we do have time for questions, and uh, just a reminder that we are recording, so please signal if you don't want your question recorded. Um, do, do we have any questions or comments from the audience? Thanks very much. I just wondered if you could comment on the nature of the deportations, how they're carried out, what sort of human rights violations are happening, and uh, whether you've seen any improvements since the US has been more involved, or, yeah, if you could just comment a little bit on the deportations themselves. Thanks. Sure. Uh, right, so the, um, you, I assume you're, you're talking about the deportations um, from, from Mexico? Right. So there are various problems with those deportations. The first is that um, even though it's possible to ask for asylum under Mexican law, very few people know that they can ask for asylum. And there have actually been a number of surveys that have been done of people in detention centers, and only a very small minority know that it's even an option. There, there have been other studies showing that, especially among children who are in transit, some large percentage of them theoretically seem like they could apply, that they would be eligible for some kind of uh, protection uh, visa in Mexico, but again, very few of them have applied. 
that, that is starting to change this year, and asylum applications in Mexico have, have increased pretty substantially. Um, that is only because uh, civil society on the ground has really been publicizing the right to ask for asylum. In terms of other sorts of, uh, of conditions, the, the Mexican government has readmission agreements with the, uh, the, the governments of uh, all of the different countries in, in Central America. Since the 1990s, the U.S. has actually been paying for the, uh, the deportations of, of third country nationals. When it, when it comes to the nationals from other countries further afield, the so-called extracontinentals, it's very difficult to repatriate them in part because the diplomatic presence of those governments is so thin on the ground that it's a low priority for those governments. So that's where they, they, they typically are, are simply released. Um, probably the, the greatest threat to someone is, is to be released into an environment in which um, Criminal gangs have a lot of, of influence and there's really not a, a real distinction between uh, particular government agents and the criminal gangs. Uh, when uh, the government last had a serious effort to try to root out um, the, the more corrupt officials in the border force, they, they found that more than 90% of them failed the polygraph and they had to fire basically the entire uh, force. So the, um, the, the conditions are, are, are pretty horrific in terms of uh, predations by, by gangs. Um, for, it's especially dangerous for women. A lot of women take a Provera injection shot and in what's called the, the anti-Mexico um, shot, the rough translation from uh, Spanish before they leave Central America to pass through Mexico because they are so concerned about the threat of, of sexual violence. Um. My question is a bit more about settlement. I know that the um, refugees who are going through the process on the Nauru and probably Manus Island as well are being, when they're resettled, they're actually being told that they'll have to pay back the cost of their airfare. Um, it creates a debt with the US government. Um, and there's limited information about how much assistance, if any, they will re receive in the US for settlement and education and these kind of purposes. Is that the same for refugees who are taken from other parts or is that like an extra condition? In, in, in general, there are resettlement benefits and the federal government contracts with a number of private organizations like um, well, there's the Catholic Charities, there's a Lutheran one, there's Hayez, the there's a Jewish one. Excuse me, the International Rescue Committee to to actually uh, conduct the business of, of resettlement, and they get—I can't give you the exact figures—but they get a substantial substantial amount of uh, resettlement in the first year, and then for another five years in practice, they they get some more uh, diffuse kinds of, of benefits. But but I believe that they are still held liable to to repay their airfare, and. You know, if you came as a subsistence farmer from Burma, that's probably never going to happen. As if you came as a merchant from Iraq, that, that might well happen. Thank you. I think that's the same actually in Canada, that refugees owe a debt to the Canadian government for their airfare as well, which is perhaps a bit more surprising. <laughs> Other questions or comments? You, David, you mentioned that a boat was intercepted um, in the last yeah, all I know is that they were Cuban nationals and they were repatriated to Cuba, but it's not clear if there was an if there was a shipboard credible fear 
um, interview as there has been in the past for, for Cubans <laughs> alone, or if uh, they've followed the principle of the shout test and are really treating Cubans like all other nationalities. At least in the public discourse, the idea is that Cubans will now be treated like everyone else, but this is a level of detail that you can't get out of a presidential tweet, so, so we don't know, and because it happens at sea, uh, we can't see it. Um, so I was interested because you said that a number of the policies or the, the laws are, are kind of intended for a US audience, so it's for show. So whereas people might know a lot about certain aspects of who's coming to the US, on the other hand, there's very little awareness of the number of people um, coming in through particular land borders and the like. I just wondered on the flip side um, whether you can tell us within Mexico what the perception is about how difficult it might be to reach the US um, and then you know through Central America more, more generally um, particularly with you know Trump's um, policy announcements about walls and, and the like um, what what's kind of how much is of you know even Trump's analysis Analysis, policy <laughs> announcement <laughs> tweets are for a US audience and how much are they intended to reach a wider audience, do you think? Right, so in, in general, the level of information about US border policy is extremely high in Mexico. Um, I can't tell you what's, a, what's known right now because I've been doing the field work in the last few weeks. But I suspect that they have a very high level of information. We, we also know that the, the number of new um, arrivals has dropped off. As, and this is also typical of what happens when there's some kind of exogenous shock and people just put their plans on hold to see what happens after the crisis. So for example, after the 9-11 attacks, the number of new arrivals uh, from Mexico dropped pretty significantly because people wondered what would happen and they just wanted to wait and see. Um, but in our, in our surveys that we did for, I did this for six years, ending a few years ago, uh, we, we asked people about what they knew about specific kinds of U.S. Um, border policies and also to rank order the ones that they thought were, um, you know, m most of a deterrent. And, uh, and we found that all of the kinds of uh, punitive legal policies, such as prosecuting people for illegal entry, which until the 2000s was almost never done. Uh, th those kinds of things, or being arrested by the Border Patrol, were not a deterrent. The deterrents came from people who were worried about their physical safety. They were worried about dying in the desert, or they were worried about being victimized by bandits on the, the Mexican side of the border. And, and over time, the, the fear of violence along the border became the, the primary concern. So to the extent that you see any kind of deterrent effect of U.S. policy, it's built on this, this threat to, to die. Um, the, the number of deaths has reached about 6,000 since U.S. border enforcement became intensified in the mid-1990s. That's an average of one person a day who dies trying to enter uh, the U.S. from Mexico. So there's, there's a lot of awareness of the risks. The U.S. also has a publicity campaign in, in Mexico and Central America, and they've had this for a long time, advertising the risks. Unlike the case of Australian campaigns that are conducted in places like Afghanistan or European campaigns in uh, Africa, the U.S. campaigns are unbranded, unbranded advertising. They're presented as if they were produced locally uh, with local music and, and so forth, um, but in fact they're all designed and, and paid for by the Americans. Thank you very much for the presentation, uh, very timely.
you alluded on a couple of occasions to civil society in the US and increased engagement with that. Now, recognizing that this is somewhat requiring you to gaze into a crystal ball, um, to, to what extent do you see the Trump phenomenon building greater interest amongst civil society in, in what is happening, particularly with respect to asylum seekers? And how effective can you, um, do you see that as having an impact on the administration, or are they likely to be completely um, oblivious to something that is as sensible as human rights and, and legal frameworks? Yeah, so one of the most striking things about the, um, the impact of, of, of Trump's election and then his inauguration and the kinds of policies that he's ruled out is the, the very strong reaction from civil society. It's, it's really remarkable to say, even in places that are normally pretty apolitical, like San Diego, where you know, it's like here, it's a nice weather, and people are out doing yoga on the beach and so forth. But the, the, the thousands of people that showed up at the airport uh, without any prior organization uh, during the rollout of the first executive order is, is, is really stunning. And we've already seen some very effective campaigns around the detention of particular people who were illegally present in the US and were picked up by the Department of Homeland Security um, sometimes after they checked in. These, these were cases of people who in the past would never have been um, prosecuted or deported even. Um, but th because they were detained and they had a lot of public attention to them on behalf of their advocates, a number of them have been released in different parts of, of the US. I also, this is speculative, but I, I suspect that um, that, that first night on January 27th when we saw the, the airport cases being uh, litigated, um, I, I suspect that those decisions might have been different had there not been thousands of people outside the, the courthouse chanting. Um, you know, I'm a, a legal realist in, in that sense. So, so I, I think it has had a galvanizing effect. Who knows how far um, this is going to matter, but, but I'm sure it matters, and I think it especially matters when it comes to issues of externalization, because the whole logic of externalization is for things to happen where they're difficult to see. Um, so to the extent that legal community, advocacy organizations, and, and media are, are, are making these things visible, I think that the abuses are likely to not be ended, but to be reduced. David, I wonder if you could um, just Tell us a bit about UNHCR. You mentioned them only very briefly. I wonder whether that reflected their role in the region, or whether they, um, how you see their uh, role and responsibility. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question, um, because I think that often what happens is that the governments of the, of the global north, uh, which would include Australia, um, they they bring in the UNHCR or they support the work of the UNHCR as they do their, their buffering policies. And, and the UNHCR, and even more so the IOM, become unwitting um, parts of that, of, those, of that buffering policy. But then those, those policies sometimes, um, over the long run, have a, have, a, have a blowback because the presence of the UNHCR on the ground um, creates a, a, an agency that is observing uh, various abuses and then reporting them. And I know that there's often a lot of criticism of the UNHCR for not reporting things more vigorously, but the UNHCR also does a lot of training of other civil society organizations which are not as reticent to be outspoken about 
the abuses that they see. And specifically in the U.S.-Mexico uh, case, the, the U.S. was instrumental in getting the UNHCR into Mexico in the early 1980s to run the uh, refugee camps, mostly of Guatemalans and some Salvadorans and, and southern, Me southern Mexico. There was a lot of resistance on the part of most parts of the Mexican government. It was, it was basically the U.S. in concert with the Mexican foreign ministry that brought in the UNHCR. Once the UNHCR was there, over time, then they started being outspoken about, um, about various abuses that happened in those quite remote camps and jungle areas. So, so, so I, I think that despite the criticism that one finds, especially in, in the academic literature, um, that th this is a very important way that often um, the policies of countries in the global north to, to create these buffers, uh, create the seeds of, uh, of, of dissent over the long run. Well, in the interest of time, we'll unfortunately need to have to draw to a close now. But David, thank you very, very much for a presentation that couldn't have been more timely, particularly about a part of the world that I think surprisingly we don't hear as much about in Australia as, as we might think we would or, or we should, uh, apart from when our own interests are particularly uh, touched as we have at the moment, of course, with um, the US-Australia done deal. Um, I think the insights that you've shared with us from your research have been really interesting and, and also useful from a comparative perspective for us here in Australia. And I want to thank you again for, for coming and, and talking with us tonight. Please join me in. I'd also like to thank our hosts, Alans, who are very generous in providing us with this wonderful space and to Laura in particular for all her work in, um, in making this event happen. Thank you so much. To my colleagues at the Caldwell Centre, who have once again brought in the, the cameras, our publications, <laughs> man the mics, and so on, thank you to you as well. And of course to the audience, um, thank you for coming along. Without you, uh, this would have been quite a different event. <laughs> and please, if you're not already um, on our mailing list, do sign up. Um, the next thing that might be of interest to you is that we have a, a new policy brief coming out very soon by Violetta Moreno-Lacks, who some of you might have heard on a panel a number of weeks ago. And that's another comparative piece that's looking at interdiction policies, um, Australia compared to Europe. So do watch out for that. I hope you have a very pleasant evening and, and we look forward to seeing you at another Calvin Centre event. Thanks once again. Thank you.